program that we're going to do tonight focuses on the songs, three of the songs, not all of the songs in the Seder, but three of them. Dayenu, Echad Miodea, and And we're not going to be, um, we, we'll do a little bit of singing, um, just to sort of be get in the right spirit and all. Yeah. Um, but we're, this is not uh, primarily about the music of these songs. Um, but um, we will talk a little bit about the importance of singing um, in, in more general terms. So the plan is that we'll talk a little bit about um, the connection between uh, Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt, and the idea of song. Uh, we'll look at uh, each of the songs, and we'll look a little bit at the history of uh, each of them, so where they came from, how they fit into the Passover Haggadah, uh, and what they mean. Okay? And uh, as I said, we'll do a little bit of singing. Uh, okay. So, um, if I ask you about connections between the um, Exodus and singing, what might come to mind? The song at the sea. The song at the sea, right. So um, the Israelites uh, have the narrow escape. They just make it through the Red Sea. They look back, they see the Egyptians uh, basically dead. And um, they, they burst into song over the fact of their deliverance. Um, and this, the Midrash tells us, and we'll, we can look at the, um, our first text now. Uh, word of, one word about these texts. You'll notice that there, there's a number of things, um, a number of texts here that are numbered. Those uh, ha- that have numbers, um, I have uh, provided you with the Hebrew text for if you want. I have plenty of those if you want them. Um, th- those without numbers um, don't have Hebrew, Hebrew translations. Uh, and we'll probably get through most of these, but, but certainly not all. Oops, okay. All right. So um, there, there's um, two Midrashic traditions, actually, about which is the first song. Uh, one says that there is uh, a song. The, the, the book of Isaiah actually says that there should be a song on a hallowed night. And so uh, people who are compiling Midrash felt that, of course, that had to mean the Hallel. And what was the hallowed night? The hallowed night had to be the night of the first Passover in Egypt. So on the basis of this, this is a kind of tenuous connection. Uh, There is uh, one tradition that says the Hallel was actually chanted in Egypt on the night of of the first Passover. This is all Midrash, okay? There is no such recorded song anywhere in the Bible. in Egypt, for sure. Uh, but the first song that, uh, that we do come to is this Shirat Hayam, just after the, uh, the Israelites safely make it across the Red Sea. And it, it's interesting. I mean, um, the, the Midrash says that, you know, up until this moment, nobody had thought to sing a song of praise to God. So there's, there's something about being in a certain kind of situation that evokes something new. And that it, the new is kind of like you take a big, deep breath and instead of words coming out, something new and different comes out. So that's a, a very important uh, connection, for sure. Uh, and Heschel said something uh, very important about song, not in connection with uh, Shirat Hayam, uh, but, but you know, may very well relate to that whole experience that, that led to this, this first song. Uh, so this is our next text here. 
The way to faith leads through acts of wonder and radical amazement. Certainly the Israelites were uh, full of wonder and amazed at what had happened to them. We sing to him before we are able to understand him. So uh, I think that sort of nicely captures what, what actually might have been happening at that moment. Then if we look, uh, go scroll much, much forward in history to uh, other texts, to the first text that we have that actually describe what we're supposed to be doing on the night of the Seder, and that, uh, that is in the Mishnah. Uh, the Mishnah about uh, 1800 years ago describes uh, some of the things that we would definitely recognize at, that we would be doing at a Seder. Having four cups of wine, having haroset, reclining, having some questions. Uh, but one of the things that um, is sort of maybe not the highlight of that, of that chapter of the Mishnah, uh, tells us something about reciting a blessing of song. And so this is text three here. The bold is actually the Mishnah, and then the not bold is the Gomorrah. So these two, two things put together, the Talmud. So we're actually looking at a little snip of Talmud here. They poured for him the fourth cup of wine, and he completes the Hallel over it, and also recites over it Birkatashir, uh, the blessing of song. So by the time some generations had passed and uh, the actual compilers of the, the Mishnah were no longer around, uh, the rabbis in Babylonia and in the land of Israel weren't really sure uh, what this Birkat Hashir was. So there's a, um, a little bit of discussion. What is this blessing of song? Rabbi Yehuda says, all your works praise you. This is a little passage in the Haggadah that begins, Yehalaluch Adonai, Koma Secha. And goes on to talk about how, how, how lovely it is to praise God's name with song. And Rabbi Yochanan says that Birkat Hashir is Nishmat Kolchai, the song of every, the soul of every living thing shall bless your name. And then there's a beautiful little passage that comes a little bit further. Ilu filu malay hashir. So were our mouths filled with song as the sea is filled with water we would be unable to thank you. So again, imagery of song coming in, um, you know, right in this, um, this now is the Talmud, trying to clarify what the Mishnah meant by Birkat Hashir. But even in the Mishnah, something very important about bringing song into the evening. So that's what we see from, from that little snippet of Talmud. Could you explain the chronology again? The first, the bowl that uh, yeah. is from the Mishnah. Yeah, the what time was that? And around so it was compiled time. around 200, uh-huh. and the Talmud, mm, let's say, compiled finished by around 500. So it's you know um, discussions on stuff that that uh, you know generations of sages had a long time ago. Although some of the, this, uh, some of this Rebbe Yehuda, for example, I think is a fairly early um, sage in the Talmud. So it's not to say that it's all from the year 500, but it's kind of com- it's collected from between 200 and something and 500. Okay. And just yeah. and the actual Haggadah, more or less, that we use today okay. is more or less about a thousand years old. Okay, so that's a that's a very good question. Um, the Haggadah that we, um, as we know it, begins to develop with the Mishnah. There are things in the Mishnah, 
I mentioned some of the, you know, the actions, the, you know, the, the cups of wine, the reclining, things like that. There are actually little passages in there that are very similar to what, what are in our Haggadot today. Rabbi Gamliel says that you have to you know, give the proper definition of matzah, um, maror, etc. Um, so there's certain things that you will see in the Mishnah. There's certain other things that come in in the Talmud. Most of um, the development of the Haggadah takes place in, uh, in Babylonia. The, uh, in the Sidurim, the prayer books of the Geonim, um, by like around um, 920, 930, you will find um, Haggadot that up until the meal look very much like uh, the Haggadot that we use today. The material that comes after the meal, um, except for the completion of Hallel, uh, the things starting with Eliyahu um, Hanavi, Elijah the Prophet, and going on to some of the other songs, a lot of that uh, gets added much, much later. But Nishmat Kol Chai is a very old thing, and that comes after dinner. So it seems like you know uh, people were talking about putting that somewhere. And um, anyway, that's that's a short answer to the Thank question. You. Okay. Um, so then, in the, in the Haggadah itself, uh, there are um, a couple of references in, in two places, kind of close to one another, to the notion of singing a new song right before we sing the first two psalms of Hallel. Uh, we say Venomar um, Lefanov Shira Hadasha, and we will sing before you a new song, Shira Hadasha, um, and then go into the first couple of psalms of Hallel. So um, it's an interesting thing again. Haggadah is, you know, focusing on a new song, and you could ask yourself, um, how is it that you know anybody could call the Hallel a new song? The Hallel, in terms of first of all, psalms from the Bible, old, old. And second of all, connected with the celebration of Passover uh, from temple times, when the sacrifice, not just for Passover, but when uh, sacrifices would be made in the temple, there would be Levites reciting various psalms and uh, no doubt the Hallel among them. So how could anybody call that a new song? So there are different ways of thinking about that. Uh, one is that um, uh, one of the Geonim, uh, Haigaon, from the 11th century in Babylon, <coughs> says, you should make sure that you actually sing the, um, the Hallel. You shouldn't recite it. You should really sing it. So maybe that would make it kind of new. But maybe this also means that um, you should sing it as if it were new. So sing it as if it were really um, you know, something new and great and different and um, electric in some way. Your, your mental attitude yeah, towards bring, the song. Yes, bring something different. Be in the present moment, yes. not in the past. Bring something really new and different to it. Different spirit, as you sing, maybe. This is consistent with the idea that we're not just remembering something that happened throughout the Haggadah, we're re-experiencing. Right, and that, that's a very important theme that's going to come up a lot, especially in connection with Dayenu. Dayenu is all about re-experiencing, as we'll see. Um, so uh, then we have, right after, uh, actually part of the Kiddush for the second cup of wine, um, Right at the end of that, we will recite a new song before him. Hallelujah. Oh, sorry, got to go down uh, to the uh, bottom of that page. Uh, we, th- we shall thankfully acknowledge you with a new song for our redemption and for our liberation. Blessed are you, O Lord, Redeemer of Israel. So here's the new song again. So uh, the Haggadah definitely has this, it's, com- it's making a commitment here, making a statement here to the notion that. Uh, singing new things or singing in, in new ways or singing with your whole heart 
is part of what's to, to take place. Okay. So that's in terms of general connections between uh, the Exodus music song and um, the Haggadah's special commitment to um, bringing song into, into the evening. So the point is that it, is, it isn't like these songs just happen to drift in uh, and find their way in, in the Haggadah. There's, there are reasons, I believe, why uh, this was, there was fertile soil, let's put it that way, for the incorporation of um, quite a number of new songs. Okay? Questions so far? Okay. So turn over to page two, and we're going to actually take a look at Tayyim now. And uh, maybe what we should do is we should, just to put ourselves in the right uh, mood, maybe we should just sing the first verse. I don't have the whole song here for you. I have, um, you know, the basic elements of it, but we do have the complete first verse. And if you go down, the top line in Hebrew is Kama ma'alot tovot lamakom aleinu. How many, you know, sort of wonderful divine favors has God bestowed upon us? And then the next Hebrew line is the first line of Dayena. Okay, so there are different ways of seeing Dayena, as we might discover. <laughs> Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to like lead you in the way that, um, that we do it, okay? Maybe not so different, okay? So it goes like this. Ilu hotzianu mi mitzrayim velo asal vahem shvatim dayenu da dayenu da singing of that song that we're going to do. Uh, anybody have very different melodies? That's the sort of standard. Okay. okay. How old is that melody? Can't say. I don't know. Seems everyone seems to sing. Very European. Yeah. I, I, I'm I sure know. the Jews of Morocco and Algeria don't sing it. Yeah. They're or Tunisia. Yeah. Um, okay. So where do we first find this, uh, this song? We first find it in one of the Sidurim of the Geonim, Sadi Gaon, who lived between 882 and 942. He has a Sidur, which is, um, in, in that era, a Sidur included all kinds of things. It was almost like a, a, a Sidur and a Mahsur and everything all in one. And he has an appendix uh, in his section that deals with uh, Pesach and the Haggadah. And in that appendix, there are two things that are included. The first is... Um, something that we have in our Haggadah now. After we um, drop out uh, drops of wine for each of the plates, if you have a traditional Passover Haggadah, you will come to something which um, I call like the multiplication of the plagues, where three different uh, rabbis prove midrashically that the number of plagues was actually not ten, but one proved that there was fifty, another that there was two fifty, and another that there were three fifty and that a number of these plagues took place actually at the Red Sea. Okay, so... Before they crossed over. Uh, well, the, the, what, ex, what the, happened to the Egyptians are counted as many plagues as they are being destroyed. And there are other Midrashic traditions that talk about the Israelites getting all of their uh, whatever wealth they had at the Red Sea as well. Okay, so Sadiq Ka'on says that this is an acceptable addition and includes also Dayenu. Uh, there's very much, I think, the identical Dayenu that we have with the uh, introduction, and there's a, also a summary at the end that just enumerates the, um, the divine favors that are bestowed upon us. 
So, um, interesting to see that th as a unit, uh, you find that there's, there's two elements in this unit that Sadi that is talking about. One of them is got to do with plagues at the Red Sea, and then Diane. And we're going to make uh, more of that um, soon. Um, okay, but what I'd like you to do now is actually just take a look at the, um, the 15 favors. There are 14 verses, actually. Uh, but the first one has two favors. So if we're just counting on the left all of the, the favors, uh, you'll see that there are 15 of them. And uh, just look through them for a minute and um, think about um, how you might group them or how the song you know, seems to perhaps group them. see quickly uh, three groups uh, one group bringing us out of Egypt one group of um, sustaining the Israelites in the desert and giving the Torah in Mount Sinai and one group after we get to Israel and and the ultimate rebuilding of the temple uh-huh okay what was your thought I was thinking sort of similarly that the the first sort of grouping of them are um, favors for us but on the Egyptians uh -huh. that there's a set that are sort of uh, these favors that are more immediate mm -hmm. and then there are these things that then sort of become communal or traditional sort of like legacy, the right. Sabbath. Right, right. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought like the per whole first group of them, the first four, are more things that actually harmed the Egyptians and caused problems for them, whereas the last few are just benefits that we received. Mm -hmm. That's true. So one was on the backs right. of the Egyptians. They, they right. certainly lost all their slaves. Right. 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 Okay. So there are many ways of um, you know sort of categorizing these uh, for sure. One of the um, the kind of um, ways that people have thought about is along the lines that you're mentioning for sure. Um, slight slight variation maybe in terminology. The first five dealing with Egypt. The next five actually dealing with miracles of different sorts. And the last five dealing with matters of kind of spiritual ascent, uh, you know, ending up um, at the temple. And we're, we're going to see this idea of going from Egypt and ending up at the temple is an important one in a minute. Uh, so what we should see here is that um, starting in Egypt, ending up uh, at the temple, uh, is actually parallel to in very rough ways to what the Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea, does as well. And if you look at, uh, we have a little bit of that down below at the bottom of the page. We start with Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He's thrown into the sea. And then we end, you shall bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for you to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So we have, we have a kind of interesting parallel about how things begin and end between these two songs. And we've already said that uh, Shirat Hayam is the first song. And it turns out that in the Haggadah, Dayenu is also the, the, the uh, Haggadah's first song. 
We, we might chant things like the Manishtana and chant Avadim Hayinu and things like that. But those are not really songs with a refrain and with clear verses or anything like that. This is the first song that we come to. So you mentioned the idea of reliving. Um, so the, the, you know, what's, what we're reliving here is we've gone through this whole enumeration of what the Egyptians have suffered at the Red Sea, and then we burst into song. It's just like what happens when the Israelites cross the Red Sea and start singing. So it's a very um, kind of uh, tangible um, example of this reliving. Okay. So what's also important to see here is that um, the way that the um, compiler of the Song at the Sea and Dayenu were thinking about the Exodus was a little bit different than we might think about it. We might think about it as you know, Exodus starts maybe with something to do with Moses or you know, something like that. And maybe it ends when they leave Egypt. Maybe it ends at the Red Sea. Maybe it ends when they get into the Promised Land. But we don't usually think about uh, the Exodus as being something that starts in Egypt and ends with the building of the temple. But it seems like that is kind of like the shape of history and, and the kind of extent of the Exodus. Uh, if you look at Shirat Hayam and at Dayenu. And then the Bible kind of does a very interesting thing to kind of make this point. Uh, if you turn over your page, we're going to take a look at um, when King Solomon starts building the first temple in Jerusalem. He says a very interesting thing. Uh, and in terms of the Bible, he says something that is completely unique. It occurs nowhere else. Here's what he says at the top of page 3. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In, oh, actually, this is the narrator speaking. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So what's unique in this verse is that this is the only verse in the Bible that reckons a, an event in terms of the number of years sort of What's post-Exodus. And you might think, the, you know, the Exodus is like the you know, founding event of our people. You might think that a lot of things would be reckoned from that point in history. This is the only one. And one interpretation of that is that this, you know, the Exodus started back there, and it, it really ended with the building of the temple. And then when the, a couple of years later, when the <coughs> temple was actually dedicated, we have some other verses um, from the Book of Kings, which you can just look at where it's under dedicating the temple. And you can see all of the references, again, to bringing out the people from Egypt. Okay? When is Ziv in the Hebrew calendar, the modern Hebrew calendar? Um, is it the second month after Nisan or the second month no, after Rosh Hashanah? I think after Rosh Hashanah. So it's a different month th yeah. this year. Yeah. It's, I'm not sure what the name of that month is. In modern... Uh, yeah, not... Well, if it's the one after Rosh Hashanah, Cheshvan, maybe. I guess so. I guess so. Because sometimes they pretty sure this is on the New Year also. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fairly sure that this is taking place in the fall. Okay, thank you. I'm fairly sure that it's in uh, Cheshvan. I wonder why they changed the name if the Bible actually says Ziv. It's interesting. Um, when um, the um, people went to Babylonia for the first exile, a lot of the names of the months were changed. From the yeah. Babylonian so, calendar. Yes. So, for example, um, we don't have Nisan in the Bible. We have um, um, Aviv. Okay. Aviv turns into Nisan. Spring. So many of the yeah, many of the um, 
not all the months, but many of the names of the months changed as a result of the, uh, the first um, exile. Thank you. Okay. So, um, anyway, the point here is that um, the, the parallels between Shirat Ayam are many. And just wanting to sort of, they both have this understanding of the Exodus as kind of starting in Egypt and ending with the temple. So, it's a definite kind of, um, a, a, a very strong echo of that song here, put right into the Seder. And what's it, you might say, well, why didn't they just put Shira Hayam right into the Haggadah? We have that in liturgy in all kinds of places. Why not just put it in there? And um, the answer to that basically is that um, the Mishnah that we refer to tells us that we're supposed to, we're not really supposed to just read the book of Exodus on the night of Passover. We're supposed to make a midrash on various verses from the book of Deuteronomy. We're supposed to treat this in a midrashic, creative type of way. And so you can think of Dayenu not only as a midrash on, um, on the Exodus, the whole Exodus, but sort of as playing with um, Shirat Hayam as well. So the Haggadah is, you know, it uses biblical verses, but it doesn't use them in the same, in a, like in a straight narrative way which is one of the reasons why the Haggadah is in, in, in some places very hard to follow. Unless you're used to this Midrashic approach, um, you know, which takes a phrase from one verse and a phrase from another verse, and you're kind of always bouncing back and forth, it's hard to follow. But it's one of the most popular texts because Jews that never studied Torah the rest of the time, they, always, they say this every year, most of them. Well, yes, um, but if you look at many um, new Haggadot, they, do, they don't take that uh, Midrashic approach. Oh. A lot of the Midrash has been um, kind of turned into narrative. Because it's very, um, it's especially for young people, very foreign. Very hard to get your... Uh, but for people that don't, are adults but never had training in Hebrew. This, this some, for, some, for some people I know, this is the only time they're actually studying these things. Is yes. For the, for the Seder. Yes. Well, there are plenty of traditional Haggadot that have the same text that hasn't changed for a good number of years. But I'm telling you that there's plenty of new ones oh. that uh, change things a lot. But the it, preference would be to, to do the Midrashic. That's what you're saying. That, that was the intention. What, that's what the Mishnah was aiming at. The Mishnah was aiming at, but the Mishnah, this is important to understand too. The Mishnah seems to have been aiming at creating your own Midrash, not necessarily reciting somebody else's Midrash. So they envisioned something that would be a little bit more spontaneous, something that would change on the basis of the intelligence of the kids who were sitting around the table. So they, did, I quite sure, did not have in mind that we would be reading this kind of scripted thing, uh, you know, over the over the ages. So it's more of an oral tradition. Yes, oral, creative, personal. Okay, but that this is all this is all very important. But a, aside from um, what we need to talk about today. But uh, this is a, it's part of another um, presentation that's you know, really important to understand. Uh, so it's worth taking a few minutes on. Okay, sure. So an, another way of thinking about the Exodus, we've thought about it as this kind of a recapitulation of Shirat Hayam and um, re-experiencing the Exodus in some way. But scholars look at this from another point of view as well. They look at the Exodus and um, some of them see it as a litany, and just you know, sort of classify it as a litany. A litany is a usually a petitional prayer that has short verses and some kind of refrain. So it certainly has that, and it can be compared to other litanies, um, even though this is not a petitional one. 
Uh, and another branch of um, scholars will look at this in the, sort of under the rubric of Exodus reviews. There, in the Bible, there are a lot of different Exodus reviews. Uh, short little summaries. I started reading one to you from the book of Deuteronomy. Short little summaries of either you know, the, the whole Exodus story or little pieces of it. You see some of this in, in the book of Deuteronomy, I said, uh, in Psalms, uh, the book of Nehemiah. You see it in a lot of different places. Uh, and these Exodus reviews, um, some of them are very um, kind of positive, just sort of recounting how great it was that everything you know, was uh, unfolded in the way that it did. Uh, but many of them are very critical of us. <laughs> and and uh, we're going to take a look at one in a minute, uh, Psalm 106. Uh, maybe somebody would like to read that. Want to read it? Okay. This our, is not the whole psalm, just little uh, excerpts. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your deeds of loving kindness, and they rebelled against you at the sea, the Red Sea. But he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. And he rebuked the Red Sea, and it was dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies, there was not one of them left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise, they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel, but they had wanton cravings in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. They forgot God who had saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. Okay, thank you. So this is a, uh, a critical or negative um, exodus review. You could certainly see that. Uh, and as I said, there are many uh, in, uh, in the Bible that are this way. Uh, so Dayenu is... Um, I'm sorry, excuse me, Justin. Yeah. Is this a translation of the psalm, or is this some... Yes. Uh, this is a direct translation of yeah. Psalm 106? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, um, the point is that, um, you know, when in the Seder, we're not going to have an Exodus review like this. We're not going to bring in something that is, um, you know, hitting ourselves over the head and beating ourselves for our sinfulness. Um, you know, we do that, actually, we do that kind of thing on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, we, that is a time when we are uh, really looking at what we've done wrong uh, and how we can improve things. The Haggadah is really um, functioning in a, in a very different kind of way. It's not saying, you know, don't, don't think about how to use freedom in a, in a more effective way. It's not, it's not against that. But the Haggadah develops at a time when we're, as a people, having a very difficult time. And it is a book that uh, kind of evolves with the goal of uh, renewing our energies and uh, renewing a sense of hope that what happened a long time ago wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of a story that maybe was interrupted, uh, but it's going to have a happy ending. It's going to have a happy conclusion. <laughs> and part of that depends on uh, our relationship with God being in a good place. So Dayena was all about saying, wow, this was great. And that would have been enough. It's about gratefulness. Focusing on gratitude instead of yes. what we don't have. And yes. Right. The, the glass of cherry is, you know, is half full. Uh, so, and that makes, that makes a lot of sense given the Haggadah's uh, sort of underlying goal, which is to kind of keep uh, people um, with the program. There are lots of t a lot of temptations when times are very dark. You know, promises, promises. Okay. Uh, 
There's another um, uh, scholarly tradition that thinks about Dayenu um, as, well, let's say, in relation to um, Christian texts that were developing um, around the time that the Mishnah is um, taking form. And um, some of those have the character of these, uh, these critical or negative Exodus reviews. If you turn the page to the top of page four, we'll look at one of those. I ask you a question. Is it really yeah. criticism, or is it simply warning that if we don't want bad things to happen, we need to focus on our Jewish faith and prattles? Yeah. It's not necessarily criticizing us. It's just right. saying, if you do these negative things, you're going to have a negative result. So if you want positive results in the future, we're reminding you that that really happened. Yes. Yeah. No, so it, it's not necessarily put a put-down. It's more a warning about how we can shape our future. Uh, it is. Well, the Haggadah doesn't want to go there. Okay. Um, but you're, you're certainly right. No, I'm talking about the criticism. Yeah. It's pointing out, um, you know, reminding us of our backsliding. And, the, you know, look, the Bible is full of that. We, we were wandering the desert for 40 years because we basically wanted to go back to Egypt instead of going forward. <laughs> you know, so uh, you're, not, you're not finding that in Diana. And you're not finding that in Haggadah either. So it, it's, it, there, it's a, I wouldn't say spin, but it's, it's telling the story um, from a pretty positive point of view and not um, focusing on our lapses. That's more for Shavuos. Well, there are a lot of other times of the year, but not, not the night of Passover. Okay, so looking at Dayenu in relation to um, uh, some Christian texts that we're developing and thinking about Dayenu as a possible, um, either a source for these Christian texts or as a reaction to these Christian texts. There's scholars that think both things about that. So let's, I'll read the top there. Uh, this is Melito of Sardis, who's Bishop of Sardis. Sardis is in uh, Turkey. And um, he writes, Christians were celebrating um, Easter, many of them at this period, at the same time as we were celebrating uh, Passover. The separation didn't, between Passover and Easter, the timing and all, didn't occur until, um, you know, I think, a few hundred years later. So uh, we have our uh, Haggadah that's developing, and you know, there's something which you might think is a, like a Christian Haggadot that are developing as well. And so this is a little uh, excerpt from uh, the, the, uh, the homily. You're saying that the early Christians celebrated Passover? Well, early Christians were Jewish. They're all, the early Christians were all Jewish. Okay. So we're talking really about Jews who believe in Jesus. And um, you know, it wasn't until somewhat later um, that, um, that there began to be outreach to people. After the were, Council of Nicaea, yeah. Well, three hundred. Yeah. No, this is uh, this is way off the topic. But Paul, basically, um, in you know, between fifty and sixty in that period, uh, goes through a whole thing with the um, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem about whether or not you have to be Jewish before you can become Christian. And Paul says, no, let's go out and do outreach to the Gentiles. And uh, that's what they did. Okay. But anyway, Melito. So this is a homily? Uh, yeah. It's a, long, it's a long sort of you know, uh, liturgical piece for Christians to um, you know, read parts of on, around you know, their celebration of uh, Easter. Okay. Uh, so, ungrateful Israel, come and take issue with me about your ingratitude. How much did you value the descent into Egypt and your sustenance there to handsome Joseph? How much did you value the ten plagues 
How much did you value the nightly pillar and the daily cloud and the crossing of the Red Sea? How much did you value the giving of manna from heaven and the supply of water from a rock and the law giving at Horeb and the inheritance of the land and the benefits there? And Melito's answer is uh, not very much. Uh, so you, you can see this is, has this very kind of um, negative, very critical uh, kind of tone, very opposite of Dayenu. And the point is that some scholars think that, some think that Dayenu was first, that Dayenu was really this thing that was composed. Um, I, I, you don't have to write this down, because I, this is, I don't think there's any truth in this. But there is one scholarly tradition that held that Dayenu was composed in the Second Temple period because it ends with the Temple. It, you know, that, ar- that um, view would argue that if it, the, uh, the song had been composed at a later date, there would have been other verses. It would have dealt with other events, etc. But um, hardly anybody believes that anymore. Uh, it's almost impossible to explain how it is that something that was maybe recited orally um, in the Temple um, you know, doesn't appear in any source for almost a thousand years. So that, that view is pretty much discredited. Um, so uh, the other view is that this came first. Melito came first, and that Dayenu was a reaction to that. <coughs> and uh, there's, you know, there's possibility to that. Um, I think that most scholars now really think that uh, if you look at the Exodus reviews that are in the Bible, in our scriptures, you can see that we have a, um, a long kind of and varied history of these Exodus reviews. And Dianu is just another one that is wanting to be decidedly positive in tone. So not, not necessarily reaction to, to Melito at all, even though you know, it sort of sounds like you know, it has a lot of the same ingredients. But um, you know, Christians were certainly, they embraced the Old Testament. They were certainly aware of the Exodus uh, and all of the events that transpired in the Exodus. They're, you know, Christian Bible scholars back then. So for them to write a song like this, you know, doesn't mean that they had to read Dayenu in order to do this. Okay, next question. Uh, we mentioned that Dayenu has these 15 divine favors. A lot of commentary devoted uh, to the question of why 15? And uh, the, I'd say that the most common, and in some ways the most interesting um, explanation of that comes from um, a section of the Mishnah that describes, um, it's called Midot measurements, uh, describes um, much of the, um, the architecture of the, the temple and the dimensions of the temple and various things in the temple. And so there, uh, we, we find this little passage. Fifteen steps, and the word that they use there for steps is ma'alot. Ma'alot can mean steps. They can also mean, as we see, kama ma'alot tovo, how many degrees or elements or something like that. But the same word can be used for both. Fifteen steps led from the court of the women to the court of the Israelites, corresponding to the fifteen psalms which begin Shir Hamalo, a psalm of ascent, upon which the Levites used to sing. So um, what you have here is a description of the architecture of the temple. There were uh, various courts, but uh, the first court that people would go into uh, on their way to the place where they would sacrifice the, the Paschal offering was the court of the women. The women would stay there, the men would go on, and they would go up these 15 steps. And on those 15 steps, the Levites would be singing these, these various psalms. Okay? 
So interesting uh, because, um, I mean, if we focused on the fact that Dayenu you know, deals with, brings us right up to the temple, and, it, and the architecture of the song really kind of echoes the architecture of the temple in a way. So it's actually, you know, we're kind of like in the footsteps, not only of the Israelites as they cross the Red Sea and then they sing, but of the pilgrims who were bringing their sacrifices to the temple for their offerings. So are you saying that as the people were bringing the sacrifices or the males, the, this choir would sing to them as they were going yeah. into the temple? Yeah, right. Yeah. Hello? Want to take a hand out? Talking about Diana. Okay. So, um, okay. Um, I think we'll just move on. So now the question is, um, well, you know, what would some of the, um, Diana has certain language. You know, uh, where might some of that language have come from in our textual traditions that uh, informed it? that helped shape it. And um, we'll take a couple of examples here. Uh, these are from different uh, Midrashim, the first three that we're going to look at, numbers 8, 9, and 10. These are from very ancient Midrashic sources, the oldest ones that we have, in fact. These are compiled at around the same time as the Mishnah. The first one is um, a commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. <coughs> and here uh, we see the following. Mishnah, uh, the... Um, the Midrash says, by our oath, if we see Moses leaving us, we will not let the man who had brought us out of Egypt, had split the sea for us, had brought down manna for us, had supplied us with the quail, and had performed miracles and wonders for us, we will not let him go. So here what's interesting is we do have some of the same elements again, uh, but here they're connected completely to Moses. And what's interesting in Dayenu is that Dayan was is um, in, in that in, in the introduction we get this kama ma'alot tovot lama kom that God is kind of one of the different rabbinic uh, term for the name of God the place literally uh, so it's saying look these the things that follow actually are done by God but Dayan itself doesn't tell us who the actor is so if you wanted to think that it was maybe Moses or if you wanted to think it's God depending nobody's really um, you know shoving that one down your throat. We know that um, the Haggadah minimizes Moses, does not totally eliminate him, but minimizes him very substantially, obviously compared to his presence in the Exodus itself. So we know, the, we know that the Haggadah's got a thing about Moses, and we know that that thing was probably uh, growing out of a, a great tendency to maybe make Moses into something more than just a uh, kind of an ordinary human being. So we have two sides of the fence there in terms of Moses, namely there's some one camp that is wanting to, you know, uh, elevate Moses, and the compilers of the Haggadah are wanting to kind of step on that. So you can see that Dayenu actually satisfies both by um, by kind of leaving it open. We we certainly assume that that Dayenu is all about God doing these things for us. Although it's interesting, it it, it could have, you know, brought God in directly into every verse as other songs do, but um, it doesn't. Okay, so um, next we're going to find some language in terms of the, uh, the refrain, the Dayenu, and words that are similar to that uh, in ancient Midrashim. Uh, this um, from the Mechilta de Rebbe Ishmael, which is a commentary on part of the book of Exodus. 
And it's, I should say also that um, the Michilta is uh, the Midrashic source from which more has been lifted and put into the Haggadah than any other uh, Midrashic source. So what you're going to see here, I think, um, because of this, the fact that it's in the Michilta, and be, because you'll see in a minute that the language is kind of similar, I have a feeling that this is um, kind of one of the, the inspirations. Uh, and so we'll, we'll look at a couple of these here, two paragraphs. They, the Egyptians said, If we had been plagued without letting them go, it would have been enough. And the word here is not dayenu, but it's something that is very similar, kadaihu, which can mean sufficient, or it can mean kind of like, you know, worthiness in some kind of way. Uh, it, it, it can mean, you know, sufficient, just like dayenu does. Or if we had been plagued and let them go without our money being taken, it would have been enough. But we were plagued, let them go, and our money was taken. So this is kind of like a, um, sort of like an Egyptian kvetching dayenu in a certain way. You know, they did all these things, and you know, one bad thing was followed on another. And you have some of the same, you have a little bit of the same sequence, the same kind of sequence, uh, and you have some similar kind of language. And the next one, text 10, said, Pharaoh, it would not be worthwhile or sufficient in some way, low dayenum, Pharaoh says in this contract, low dayenum, to pursue the Israelites just to get them for the sake of the silver and gold that they've taken from us, but, oh, but for the sake of this silver and gold, that is worthwhile, kadaihu. So here you have some of the same elements, the silver, the gold, the, the, the wealth of the Egyptians, and we have this low dayenu. This is, um, I'm, uh, as far as I can tell, the first place where, where in rabbinic literature you find the word dayenu used in connection with this things connected to the Exodus. So that and the fact that this is from a source that the compilers of the Haggadah kind of regularly uh, go to, uh, I think makes it uh, sort of a strong case that this is um, probably had some, some shaping influence on the composition of the song. We don't, we can't know this for sure, but um, I would certainly make that argument. Uh, and then uh, one more text. This is from a later Midrash, Leviticus Rabbah, commentary, uh, Midrash commentary in the book of Leviticus. God says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will surely open the floodgates of the sky and pour out for you blessings immeasurable. And this m- immeasurable now uses some strange Hebrew, ad bli die, like um, until without enough, or something like that. Uh, and so in the Midrash, what is ad bli die? Because it's certainly not obvious what that means. And Midrash answers, until your lips wear away from saying dayenu. So uh, it's interesting that the, the way that we sing dayenu, and it sounds like you do as well, is that you, you say this word dayenu a lot of times, I think in our, uh, the way that we do it, we do it probably, seven, we say the word 75 times. So making it one of the, uh, the most frequently repeated words um, in, in the Haggadah. So you get this idea of, it's not quite wearing out your lips, but you know, you really are counting the blessings and seeing how really the glass is, um, is maybe not totally full, but it's certainly, um, we're looking at the, uh, the positive and not the negative. Uh, if you turn over, we're going to um, 
just have a chance very briefly to um, look at, um, and, and maybe we're not even going to look so much at this. Maybe I'll just tell you a little bit about this. Um, this is a commentary that was um, written by, or at least it's attributed to Rashbam, of Shmuel ben Meir, the grandson of Rashi. And you see uh, the, um, the time that he did this. This commentator and many others had a lot of problems with Diana. Uh, the problems were of different kinds. One was, you know, let, let, let's say that um, we say if we had gotten out of Egypt but we didn't have the wealth of the Egyptians, that would have been enough. But God promises Abraham in the book of Genesis, not only are you know, your people going to be enslaved, but they're going to be free, and they're going to leave with great wealth. So what would this mean somehow that God is not going to be keeping the promise? So part of the commentary deals with things like that. Part of it deals with um, other issues. For example, one of the verses in Diana says, if we had come to Mount Sinai and not gotten the Torah, that would have been enough. Which is, in Jewish thinking, almost inconceivable to think about Judaism without Torah. It's a little very hard to get your head around. So how would that have been enough? So his commentary on that is that, um, well, maybe we would have just gotten the Ten Commandments, or maybe we would have gotten half of the Torah, or a third, and the rest would have been revealed at some other time. So we would have been happy with what we had. Um, there, this question, though, of how it could be that you could say Dayenu, you know, to a situation where we wouldn't get Torah, uh, is something that many commentators um, had things to say about. Another um, explanation was that earlier in the song, it says we have Shabbat. And there are a number of Midrashic sources that say uh, Shabbat, keeping Shabbat, is equivalent to all the rest of the mitzvot. So we already have that. So it says if we have Torah. There's another one, another commentary that was very popular in the Middle Ages, which um, is a little strange to our ears, uh, but comes from the Talmud. Um, the Talmud um, elaborates on uh, the story of Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden and basically says that um, in their um, relationship there was more than words going on, that there was actually a sexual relationship between Eve and the snake and that um, that imparted a, a kind of taint into all of humanity and that taint and that kind of like lustfulness was only cleared up when the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. And all the other peoples in the world that didn't come to Mount Sinai, they still have that. So that's the reason why if we had just gotten to Mount Sinai, that would have set us apart in a big, big way. Um, there's another um, a modern um, commentary that's uh, kind of interesting as well. And that is, um, it, it thinks about uh, coming to Sinai. So what happens at Sinai? It imagines that um, what you get is, um, you get a revelation, you get Torah, but in a very different way. You get Torah as like a bot call, like a, you know, a divine voice from heaven. So if you, you know, you get some of the rules, and then if you have questions, you wait for the next bot call, the next divine voice that will answer your questions. And the Talmud has um, plenty of stories about uh, the bot call and a very famous one where a bunch of rabbis are having an argument, a bot calls, comes and says, well, one of these guys is right, don't you know? And, uh, but the answer is that there's a majority of sages that disagree. And um, Hilo Bashamayim, 
um, Torah is not in heaven. It's actually in the hands of the majority. So what this commentary, is, this kind of modern view is saying is, look, the Bat Kol, maybe that would have been enough. It would have, we would have had Torah in some way. But the great thing is, is that Torah is given, you know, not anlanu et ha-Torah. The great thing is that God gave us the Torah. It didn't stay up in heaven, but it came to us to be the, the interpreters of. So the distinction between having Torah like in our hands versus a bat kol, where it's, it's not something that we ever have the ability to interpret. is a nice way of thinking about it, too. So you can look at um, this um, uh, on your own. And you can just see you know, how this is a pretty brief commentary. Um, you know, how they struggle with some of the issues. Um, and of course, um, you know, some, some pieces of that might satisfy you more than others. And then to summarize um, Dayenu, if you turn to the next page, what, what you'll see is that Dayenu, in, you can think about Dayenu as a microcosm for many of the kind of underlying principles that inform the shape of the Haggadah. And we've talked about a number of them already, but just to review them. Um, so, uh, I don't think I quite said this, but the Seder develops, uh, starts developing, the Seder as we know it, developing as um, a reaction to the destruction of the temple. Because while the temple was standing, the holiday, the, the essence of the holiday was going to the temple and making the offering. Not eating leavened bread as well, but the heart of it was going to the temple. So um, what we see in, uh, in Dayenu is we have this recapitulation of temple architecture, kind of evoking um, in a quiet kind of way uh, the, the days of uh, the temple and the sacrifice, the actual stairs that the pilgrims would climb. Um, so, the Mishnah, as I mentioned to you, uh, tells us that you're supposed to make a midrash on these verses from uh, the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy, my father was a wandering Aramaic, etc. Uh, that passage ends with a, um, and now the pilgrim is coming to the temple, and so is Diana. And so you can think about Dayenu as, as a midrash that kind of follows that same course. The same Mishnah says that uh, when you're telling the story of the Exodus, making your midrash, that you machil b'kudut u'mesayem b'sheva, you start with degradation or um, disgrace and end with glory. So if you follow Dayenu, you, we're starting there in Egypt. We're ending with this great spiritual ascent. Uh, um, in the Talmud, there's a, uh, an argument about two sages, uh, between two sages, who they're, they're not sure what the Mishnah meant when it said, Machil uh, Babanut, start with degradation or disgrace. So one answers that um, this degradation is slavery, obvious. Another says, no, it's not slavery. It's kind of, it's not physical slavery, it's spiritual enslavement, it's worshiping false gods. And so, absolutely, we get both of those answers in the Haggadah. First, Avadim Hayir, the first answer to the four questions, is about our, the physical aspects of slavery. And then after the four children, we get, uh, in the beginning, our ancestors worshipped idols. So that's the second uh, kind of view of the degradation or disgrace as kind of a spiritual state of, of kind of, you know, being in the, in the total wrong track. And you see in, um, in Dayeno, it starts with the physical aspects of slavery, but it ends with aspects of spiritual elevation, implying that we were, you know, we didn't have these things before, so we were very much on the wrong track. 
And then, as we mentioned um, as well, the, um, the Haggadah tells us that we're supposed to not just say the words of the, of the text here, we're supposed to really feel like we had come out of Egypt. So there's this re-experiencing that you mentioned. And um, so the Haggadah, so Diana recapitulates that. It, we go from counting all those plagues that the, the Egyptians suffered at the Red Sea, then we burst into song, just like the Israelites did when they made it through the Red Sea and sang Shirakiyam. So, Diana's, uh, I think it's a pretty well-crafted song. And it's, uh, it fits in the Haggadah really well, both in terms of its structure uh, and, in, in, and its placement. Placement is just like this little unit is perfect for this kind of recapitulation. So that's um, it for Diana. Any questions um, about anything so yeah. far? Yes. Uh, this isn't totally on track, but it just struck me because so I just want a brief answer. I know Go it's ahead. Um, how, do, how did people that were in the room at the time that you were discussing, how did they all know that it was a bot coal and not just their own subconscious mind no. or a voice in their head? How, how were they able to distinguish the difference? Because, you know, when I meditate, sometimes I, I'm trying to find the difference between my own subconscious right. mind and my intuition as well as the bot coal. That is a real different um, direction, but um, all I can uh, say... You said something about that. Right, it okay, seems so, so commonplace. They yes, so, all accepted yeah. it. Like, how? Well, I, there was no... In this story, there were lots of people there sitting around having yeah. a debate about this, and they all heard the bot call. So it's like they we all were heard, sitting around, and how, yeah. how do we... Yeah. How, well, did, if we all how heard do you know the, that you're hearing that if, versus some other voice? If we all heard like, the same thing, it might tell you that it wasn't just in your head alone. And plus, in that story, there were other things that happened as well. There were other miraculous things. There were rivers that changed their course. There were trees that like moved from here to there. There were buildings that started like leaning inward. And all I was just of trying to think of an example in modern times. I just thought of one. The establishment of the state of Israel. All these Jews at once heard that they should go to Israel and fight to keep the land in the 1940s. Okay. So okay. that maybe isn't... I was just trying to think of an example of that. Okay. Jews everywhere in the world heard that right. voice. Okay. Yes, I have a question. Yes. Um, the, we drink four cups because there are four expressions of redemption. But there is another expression yes. of redemption in which um, we don't drink a fifth cup. Right. Um, but the end of Dayenu, we do talk about God brought right. us to Israel, built the temple for right. us. So right. it doesn't seem to 100% drive. Why do we leave out right. that fifth okay. expression there, in that fifth cup right. when we're talking about this? Right. Uh, a very good point, and uh, there's a long tradition of having a fifth cup. There's actually um, uh, manuscripts of the Talmud um, where Rabbi Tarfon is, um, says that over the uh, Halal Hagadol, which is Psalm 136, you should have a fifth cup. And um, there's a long tradition um, that, uh, of many sort of great people in Jewish history having a fifth cup. Is the cup of Elijah considered in a way? Um, or, that, or the that's tradition of the that's really cup different. is different? That's really different. Okay. Um, one of the people who is most um, committed to uh, making the fifth cup you know, widespread and part of our everybody's tradition was a great um, scholar, a scholar of also of the Passover Haggadah named Menachem Kasher. And if you um, want to read about this, he wrote a book called the Israel Haggadah, 
which is both in uh, Hebrew and in English. And he has, um, at the end of it, like a whole um, kind of liturgy for the fifth cup. He tried to persuade the Menachem Kasher, K-A-S-H-E-R. He tried to persuade the Rabbinut in Israel to get on board with this. This is like in the 1950s? In the 50s, yes. It didn't work. But, um, it, but isn't it true, though, that in modern reform and Jewish renewal that they have the cup of Miriam now? That's a very strong tradition in that um, well, non-Orthodox world. Not necessarily as a cup of wine. This is also, we're getting off the track. If we have time, okay. or if you want to talk about Miriam's cup later, we can do that. Okay. Happy to do that afterwards. Okay, because we have two more songs to do. Uh, Dianu takes more time, for sure. Deserves more time. But I'd like to at least spend a little time with each of the other two songs. So, Ephod Miodea, uh, a counting song. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of counting songs um, that you may be familiar with. Um, some connected with Christmas, some connected with all kinds of, uh, you know, just folk, folk songs in general, for kids in particular. Uh, one of the interesting things is that the scholarship on, on this song, at least some scholars think, that this is actually uh, the oldest of, this song, of these songs. And it may be impossible to really know, but there's one scholar that made an argument that this is the oldest of them. And it is from this song that other ones developed and spread really all around to, to many different places. The first place that we see it in a Passover Haggadah is in a Haggadah that comes out in uh, 1590 in Prague, and it's in Yiddish and, um, and in Hebrew. But as, as with um, Haggadah, uh, there are um, some scholars that think that this is much older than that. There, is a, there was a, um, a Haggadah that was written uh, in um, 1785 in Germany that says that the person who was writing it used a sidur that, um, that was dated 1406 and the kind of what, what seems to be suggested is that this sidur said that in the walls of a Beit Midrash, a study hall in uh, another city in Germany uh, there was a parchment that was found when this place, this, this Beit Midrash was active, we know that this place was renovated like in the 1300s. And so it could have been that in that renovation there was the discovery of this parchment. We don't, nobody knows what the, where the parchment is, but this person writing in 1785, based on a book from 1406, says that on this parchment were these two songs and a, uh, a, some kind of injunction to say them on the night of Passover. And we also know that um, there was an inquisition in uh, Mallorca, uh, an island off of Spain in the Mediterranean, in 1687. And uh, that community, that this kind of converso, Morano community, had been separated from the, uh, the rest of the Jewish community probably from like the 1300s or so. And yet they find in the records of the inquisition uh, this song and a description of it as a catechism. And there are, there are Geniza fragments of the song. You say, why a catechism? There are Geniza ca uh, uh, fragments of this song, and every verse concludes with the Shema. And if you think about what's in the song, you know, these are important things. And catechism kind of like is a, a way of reminding you of important things in your faith tradition. So maybe so. So uh, there, there's one school of thought that says, 
the, this thing appeared in 1590, probably dates from around then. There, there's another that said this and Hatagya too uh, are much, much older. It didn't get written down for a long time. Not, you know, things can be in circulation for a long time before they get written down. Uh, and so that, you know, some argue that it has much older roots, in fact. But not, no, no not, we're not talking ancient, ancient. Okay. So what's interesting about this song is that it's about counting in the first place. And if you think about um, the Haggadah um, and think about numbers in the, in the um, Haggadah, you can, well, let's just see what comes to mind. If I ask you about counting and numbers and things like that in the Haggadah, what, what do you think about? Four. Four. Okay. Four what? For sons and daughters, for questions, for cups. Right. Um, any other? Um, ten. Huh? Ten. Ten. Ten plays. And I mentioned also this, um, you know, the um, kind of this um, expansion of the plays, this elaboration of the plays at the Red Sea, where they get up. You, okay, I'm just saying that we get up to hundreds of plagues, fifteen connected with the steps of the Seder. Yeah. So it turns out that um, it, it, you, when you read the Haggadah this year, pay attention to numbers, and you'll see that there are, not, there are a lot of other numbers going on. We'll see some of them a, a little bit later. But the idea of numbers um, is not insignificant in the Haggadah, and you can think of. We don't have time to explore why that is, but um, I'll give you some thoughts about that later. But think about why that might be. It's an interesting question you could discuss with your, your Seder uh, guest uh, this year. Okay, and so what's interesting about it is that Jewish tradition is, um, you know, very leery about counting, especially when it comes to counting people. And in the, the text of the Haggadah, it tells us that there, you know, Jacob would count 70 souls. So there's um, a very great um, ambivalence and, and hesitation when it comes to counting. And yet, in the Haggadah, there's a lot of it that's going on. And in this song, it's, it's all about that. And we'll, we'll understand something about why that is. And we know, for example, that when you count people at a minion, there are various song, verses from songs that have ten words. And you don't go around and count the people. You, you, know, you assign a word of each of those ten verses. So uh, it's very interesting that in the face of this whole tradition of not counting, we're, we're dealing with a very popular song that's all about numbers and counting things, counting people in some ways. And the Haggadah itself has a lot of counting going on. And the people at the Exodus, they were counted. This yes, they were. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of censuses. I know I have mine with me oh, there we today. Very timely. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of times when there's a census. I got embarrassed that only 6% of residents of Manhattan have returned them. Yes, I'm a little bit embarrassed. I don't want to be one of them. Right. So um, there's some, in some cases, there's a census where there's, um, you know, you put in a, a half a coin, and you don't actually count the people. You count the half, the half shekel. Uh, there's some places in the Bible where there's a census that, that, where that's not required. We're going to look at a place where there's a census that has terrible repercussions uh, in it that may be one of the things that influences the creation of this song. Okay. Um, so you can just quickly. Um, Take a quick, you know, look just to refresh your memory about what the song is about. We have the last uh, stanza there. A lot of important um, symbols and kind of objects in our tradition. Okay. And um, let, let me just ask a question about time for you. How are you guys doing for time? I'm plenty of time. 
Well, if we go over, is that is that okay or not okay? Yeah, yeah. 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 a little bit over. Um, I can say a few minutes. So okay. She came 45 minutes late, so she wants us to stay late. Right. Right, so maybe we will. Maybe um, maybe we'll go a little bit. Since she came late, someone else can leave early. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So um, we'll take just um, we'll look at um, one example, maybe maybe one, maybe two. We'll see of a Hasidic commentary. A lot of commentary on this song. Uh, Partly because you know it's, it's a, it seems like it could just be a folk song. It has nothing to do with um, the, the Passover Seder. A lot of um, efforts to um, understand it in a way that um, kind of rooted to uh, the things Jewish. There, some of the, the parallel uh, songs in the you know other uh, European countries, uh, you know, you just plug in different like little things, and you have a very similar kind of song. So um, a lot of effort to extract a kind of Jewish meaning in terms of the commentary here. So I'll read the first one. It was taught by the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, that the song begins with knowing oneness and continues to know it 13. But 13 returns to us as oneness because the Hebrew letters for one, the Hebrew letters in the word echad, aleph, het, dalet, you add up the numerical values, the gematria for that word, comes up to 13. So beneath the facade of multiplicity lies the ultimate truth of the unity of all things in God. That's a very common um, commentary and explanation for why it is that there's 13 verses here. Okay. Uh, the next one is worth reading because it's a little bit um, complicated to understand on your own, actually. Uh, this is from the Sfat Amet. Um, great uh, Hasidic commentator from, um, well, not so long ago. So who knows? He's going to put the emphasis uh, of his commentary on the word, on the, this Ladat, Yodea, and uh, where else does that word appear in the Haggadah? So who knows on this night? Because knowledge can bring us to the heights. And it was so important to draw close to this knowledge during the Exodus. Just as the Haggadah says, even if we were all wise, intelligent, experienced, and the Hebrew is Yodim et HaTorah, so there's the same word, Yodea Yodim, Yodim et HaTorah, we would still be obligated to recount the Exodus. Now, he doesn't, what, what this commentary is implying is we would have to recount the Exodus, which includes the great deeds of all the people in the Exodus who are participating in the, the whole story. Yocheved, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, the midwives. He doesn't say that. But he is making a distinction between the Haggadah's version of the story and, and, the, and, and what's in Yodim et the Torah. If you know the Torah, you know that the Torah is telling you a very different version of the story. Even so, he says, one must remember that it all came about through the power of God who brought us out of Egypt. And that's what we mean when we say in this song, I know, as if to say, it's because we know that it, came, it all came from God that we can tell the story of the Exodus, in which God seems not to be the sole actor. The Haggadah tells the story of the Exodus, not, not giving God 100% of the responsibility, actually. If you look carefully, and this is a whole other kind of lecture, but um, if you look carefully, there's plenty in the Haggadah that points to the human role in the redemptive process, but you have to look carefully for that. But if you look at the story of the Exodus, uh, human beings are doing critical things at every turn of the road. So 
very interesting um, kind of subtle drosh on the difference between the Haggadah's depiction of the story and the story that you would tell if you knew Torah and with the sort of the relative role of God versus uh, humanity is different in the two, mm-hmm. two places. So you're saying if you just read, study the book of Exodus and its commentaries, there's more of an emphasis on the human yes. actions. Yes, for example, you find Moses mentioned all over the place. You find, you find women doing all sorts of important things. There is no Moses unless his mother does certain things. Pharaoh's daughter saves him, all kinds of things. Miriam does all these things. So they, I'm sorry, so why would the Haggadah de-emphasize the role of human beings? I understand that there would be a balance right. when I praise the God, but why would they de-emphasize right. to that extent the role of humans? Uh, the main concern here is, I think, with Moses and with the, um, On the, the temptation. temptation yes, yes. Because they're, again, a subject, but we have in our, in our sources uh, Midrashim that are very close to deification of Moses. And the Haggadah is wanting to throw cold water on that. It's not wanting to say that human beings didn't participate. And if we had more time, we could look at other things that uh, speak to that. Okay. And that's, is that why you have the Muslims and the Christians acknowledge Moses, but they ignore the Jewish people that are living today? But they're all, in their holy books and their festivals, they always acknowledge Moses. But living Jewish descendants of him, they, they don't treat very well sometimes. You know? um, Mm, I mean, the Muslims actually have a place where they actually think Moses is buried, right, or something like uh, that. I don't know, but I know that um, Moses is mentioned in the Quran a lot. Yeah, and so the story of the Exodus is repeated. In the Quran. Right, so that's strange that they would revere him, could be, but not revere his descendants who are us. Uh, okay, so now we're going to look at midrashic roots of this song, and uh, we have to start with one of the. A story about a census that's in the Book of Chronicles, <coughs> and David decides. Um, actually, Satan puts it in his head that um, maybe he should go out and conduct a, sense, a census. And uh, he goes out and does this. He's advised by all of his top generals, "Don't do this. God's not going to like this." Um, he goes out and he does it anyway. And sure enough, there's bad things that are going to befall people. And basically, um, a prophet comes and says to David, you have a choice. You can choose, this is in here, but you, you, don't, you can find it a little bit later. Uh, this is verse 11 and 12 or something. You could choose three, ver- three years of famine, three months of destruction by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the borders of Israel. So David decides he's, his, none of these are great choices, but he would rather be punished by God than by the enemies. Um, and so he elects this. And, um, and toward the end of the story, if you go down to the bottom of the page, you find a, a verse that's underlined here. And David lifted up his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and the heaven. This is the key here. Having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched over Jerusalem. Okay, so what's very interesting about this is there's going to be, there's two things that are interesting about it. One is that around this story, there's going to be a midrash that develops that, set, that probably inspired Echad Neodea. And this uh, angel, doesn't say angel, but this image of 
a drawn sword in his hand stretched over Jerusalem, that, that line is actually in the Haggadah itself. This is very interesting. And if you turn over, you'll see where it, right where it is. Maybe somebody could read that, the top paragraph. Okay. Mighty hand refers to the disease among the cattle. As it is written, Behold the hand of the Lord strikes your cattle which are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks, a very severe pestilence. Outstretched arms refer to the sword, as it is written. His drawn sword is, the, is in his hand, outstretched over Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the hand of the angel that David sees. So very interesting that not only we're going to come to a midrash that deals with this story of the census and maybe informs um, you know, the shape uh, and the content of that song, but that there's also an allusion to that very census right in the Haggadah. It's probably a line that you don't pay a lot of attention to. It's extremely discordant. We're talking about the Haggadah wanting to kind of depict our relationship with God in kind of very positive terms. This is one example where a sword over Jerusalem is sort of like the last thing that you would expect to see in the Haggadah. Why that's there is a, uh, another interesting question, but not for now. Anyway, so here's the Midrash. The Midrash... Uh, Maybe the sword is defending Jerusalem. From no, the no, no, no. This, this is, the, is the punishing sword. Not punishing our enemies. No, no. Punishment for the census. Yes. Okay, so here's the Midrash from Pasik the uh, Rabadi, old Midrash, 16th century or so. It's describing uh, what happens. David is, um, you know, he's, you know, before God, and the question is, is there any way to? Um, it's like, you know, many midrashim depict a almost like a court kind of scene where there are people, in, you know, kind of intercede on behalf of Israel. So that, this is the scene of this intercession. Then good pleaders came to request mercy. The seven days of the week. We have that in the song. The eight days prior to circumcision in the song. Thus 15. The five books of the Pentateuch. Three patriarchs. Both of them were in the song. And according to Rabbi Tanhuma, Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the covenant. They're both in the song. A total of 35. Now, this, pes- this pestilence is supposed to go on for 36 hours. Okay, so we've now kind of gotten down. We've knocked 35 of the 36 hours off. Okay. Um, the heads of the 12 tribes appear as well. Um, in any event, oh, with the 12 tribes, I'm sorry, that brings us up to 35. In any event, there remained only one hour of pestilence, but behold how many hosts died in that brief hour, 70,000. Okay. So here you, you, we have a lot of the, the language, uh, a lot of the elements that, um, that are in that song. And, and plus, the Midrash is really um, addressing a line that's in the Haggadah itself. So I'd make a pretty strong um, argument for the fact that this is, um, you know, probably uh, whoever compiled Echadiotea uh, was aware of this. Okay. And then we look down a little bit more here and we'll see that uh, numbering of people in uh, the Haggadah, as I mentioned uh, before, is a big thing. Not only do we have the 70 uh, people that Jacob um, brings down with him, but the whole story is about the population growing and growing and growing. The more they're oppressed, the more they grow. And if that, in fact, doesn't happen, it's, it's the growth of the population 
that uh, actually you know, precipitates Pharaoh's uh, enslavement of the Israelites. So population growth, big numbers, is really a big part of the story. And uh, this is part of the promise, God's promise to Abraham. Your people will be numerous, numerous, numerous. Uh, won't be able to count them, etc. Uh, now, go back to this idea that I was talking about before. You know, we're a people that's experiencing uh, pretty dark times as the, uh, the Haggadah is developing. We're reading this at the time of year, uh, certainly in Europe, which is one of the most difficult times for Jewish communities. Easter, blood libels, things like that. This is one of the most difficult times of the year for the Jewish population in Europe, for sure. Uh, and we want, a, um, we want a story that is going to, um, in some way, address this question of, hey, you promised us such great numbers. We're supposed to be like, we're supposed to be the big majority. What happened? We're like little pipsqueak people here. We certainly, we certainly don't have an army. David was counting the people in his army. Not only are we have very few people to count, just in terms of our population, we had no army at all. So you have Echad Mi'odea coming along, uh, and in its quiet way, when you understand the kind of the context that gave rise to that song, I think, both in terms of Midrash and this whole census idea, you have a song that is basically saying to you, listen, you, you, if you want to count things, count the right things. Count the things that are really important to you. Count the things that, in a way, you can count on to help you remain uh, a people, remain um, you know, a faithful people. Don't be counting your numbers. That will disappoint you. And if you're expecting big armies, forget it. Uh, but what this song is saying is, in a way, we have something that, that we can count and that we can count on. So it's, it's, it's a similar theme of gratitude in some ways? Um, Posi yeah. A positive spin it's on things. Positive, but giving, reminding you what's really important here. The important things are, uh, you know, that there's Ten Commandments, not that there's, you know, 250 Jews in this town. Okay. So, um, a little bit on Chagadya now. Um, again, it's a song that... Um, some people think, you know, it goes back to this Beit um, Midrash on this little piece of parchment. Uh, here, we do have a, um, a manuscript Haggadah that is between the some, sometime in like 14, early 1400, 1500, something like that. That's the first place that we actually have the song appearing anywhere. It appears in um, Yiddish and Aramaic. Uh, again, it is like um, a lot of folk songs. There are the house that Jack built, all kinds of other songs. There's some some uh, little folk songs that have some of the same elements. I mean, the ox, the water, the fire, the stick, a lot of the same elements. Excuse me, Mr. Yes. Uh, but the Aramaic language, wouldn't that indicate that it's much, much older? Because the Jews haven't spoken or written things in right. Aramaic for 2,000 years, right? right? I don't know. but uh, Well, uh, you might think so, but um, that is actually not so. So people have spoken Aramaic more Well, it's not a question of whether, what they spoke. It's a question of um, if you want to make something look old, write it in Aramaic. So the Zohar is written in Aramaic, and it's written in... 1200. Know, yeah. Like we yeah. build things with Roman columns. Yeah. Um, oh, I was, so it's written in Aramaic, but it really, you don't think it's from the time that we... Very doubtful. Okay. Very, very doubtful. Um, 
They're different. No, no. If, again, it gets us to this issue of if something we have, you know, it pops up in a manuscript in like, you know, say between 1400 and 1500. It's like we're, if we're going to go back to times when we're all speaking Aramaic, hard to understand why this thing would suddenly appear, you know, 1200 years later or something like and that. And then have no reference between them. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, it's interesting that it's in Aramaic. Uh, it pro- the, the, it's poor Aramaic, actually. Um, not that I'm such a scholar of this, but this is this is how scholars understand this. And they, they think that it was probably translated from the Yiddish. The Yiddish is kind of much better Yiddish than the Aramaic. Uh, okay, so take just a minute and uh, just kind of acquaint yourself with um, you know what we have here. We have the last. Just, I'm sorry, just one yes. quick question. Then. Yes. Does that mean that Sephardim don't have this because if it's translated from Yiddish, they have no tradition of this? Um, this song is um, pretty much in, in this Sephardic Haggadah uh, as well. Uh, I'm pretty sure that this is um, probably the most universally um, sort of adopted song of all of them. Um, but you know, this starts coming into printed Haggadah later. So, um, you know, this, um, this became a favorite, kind of, um, you know, across all groups of Jews. And a kid is a goat, right? A kid is a goat. Yes. Uh, okay, so you get the idea here that this is a song about a lot of um, violence, something that starts off kind of nice and innocent. Father buys this kid for two uh, coins. And uh, it's downhill from there until the Kaddish Baruch Hu God comes and slays the angel of death. Now, we, we need to understand that this is the last song in the Haggadah. It's the last thing, the last thing that we say as we're kind of singing this last verse, aside from the chorus, Haggadah, is God's coming and slaying the angel of death, implying that we are, um, you know, we're envisioning a completely different era a kind of messianic time of eternal life. So there's a long tradition of understanding the uh, the Seder as kind of divided into two parts. The part that is before dinner, referring to uh, things pertaining to Egypt and the past. The part after dinner, referring to the future and to ultimate messianic kinds of redemption. So it's very fitting in that way that um, that Hagagyah gets the very last word, and that very last word is a radical transformation of life as we know it. Now, um, there, again, just to look at some of the things that um, inspired the, the song, there, there are lots of texts in the Bible that, um, you know, kind of speak in the language of midah keneged midah, measure for measure. You do this, you get this. And we'll just take the first example here. Maybe somebody could read the um, the verse from uh, Jeremiah. Therefore, somebody want to read? Right. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go to captivity. And those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all those who prey upon you will I give you for a prey. For I will restore health to you, and I will heal your wounds, said the Lord. Okay, thanks. So. 
not to say that, um, you know, um, that Chagadia is coming from this verse or any of the other verses that we have here. But, um, you know, you, this concept of um, measure for measure, uh, which the song is really full of. Uh, and um, in some places, you know, um, this, this kind of ends on a, on a positive note, like Chagadia. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a place in the Talmud where uh, we have something that's kind of similar, a little bit reminiscent of Chagatya. Um, of Maybe somebody could read that. 15, text 15. Want to read that? <clears throat> Rabbi Judah said, Ten strong things have been created in the world. The rock is hard, but the iron cleaves it. The iron is hard, but the fire softens it. The fire is hard, but the water quenches it. The water is strong, but the clouds bear it. The clouds are strong, but the wind scatters it. The wind is strong, but the body bears it. The body is strong, but fright crushes it. Fright is strong, but wine vanishes it. Wine is strong, but sleep works it off. Death is stronger than all, and charity saves from death. As it is written, righteousness saves from death. So, you know, scholars think that this is the kind of thing that might have had some you know, some general inspiration, uh, influence on the development of the song, but there's nothing um, like what we were looking at in terms of Dayenu, where you actually see, you know, this like low Dayenu in Exodus context and things like that. There's nothing as close anywhere as a parallel to, uh, to Haggad Yah. The most common way of understanding the song, and there are a lot of variations on this theme, is that, uh, that this really is the cycle of Jewish history which started off great and has been you know, a succession of difficulties and trauma one after another, but that it's going to have a, a happy ending. And um, I brought you one of these commentaries here, which you can um, look at on your own. Uh, I'll just tell you, um, just to say one or two things about it. This is um, Jonathan Aitchitz, who a um, great, great uh, scholar living in Germany, um, 16, his years, uh, 1690 to 1764. Super, super brilliant man. Um, very difficult life. He was accused of being a follower, uh, a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. He rose to be a great, great um, you know, rabbinic figure, and then all of a sudden he's like accused. And there's questions about whether he was or he wasn't. The person who accused, accused him, also a great, brilliant, uh, guy who also wrote a commentary on Chagadya um, also. And the Vilna Gaon, uh, uh, around the same time, a little bit later, he writes a commentary uh, on Chagadya uh, also. He is the one who goes to war against um, Hasidism. So all three of these people, there are, there are others who've written commentaries. Did he ever recover from that accusation and but prove that he was correct? It was something that... Um, he died being accused. And his he never defended himself. Oh, his community stuck with him. But the accusations, uh, the, the guy who was accusing him uh, kept doing it until he died, which is many years later. So one of the things that he's most known for is not his scholarship and all that, but the fact that he was you know, the object of this whole um, But he tried to defend himself. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Not oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. They, the case got so bad that they went to the king of Denmark, and the king of Denmark intervened and uh, said, but the guy's innocent. It was a very, very um, sort of difficult, uh, kind of embarrassing kind of thing, I'm sure, for all involved, but went on for a very, very long time. But just interesting to see 
that uh, three great, great thinkers who wrote some of the most important commentaries on this, this song were people whose lives, in some way, were full of conflict, kind of like the song. The Vilna Gaon, as I said, I mean, went to war against um, Hasidism and said things basically like, you know, their, their kashrut is not kosher, don't marry them, don't, don't bury their, you know, don't participate in funerals. As far as you could go, he's willing to go. So, um, anyway, you can look at the commentary yourself. Um, the, uh, just one quick thing about this. He makes a very big deal, writes pages and pages about the significance of the Aleph and the fact that um, in Aramaic, the, the Hebrew word is Gedi, which ends in a Yud, that's like the little kid. Um, but in Aramaic, it's Gadya, which ends in an Aleph. So he makes an enormous deal about the, the significance of this Aleph, which for him symbolizes the unity of God and the Jewish people. Uh, and he, just for example, uh, Aleph is the only letter that has a complete name of God in, included in it. Ale is included. And if you want to spell out Aleph, you get the name of God. If you turn the letter upside down, it looks the same. This is the people of Israel. You can do whatever you want, wear the same. <laughs> So it's a very complicated, very mystical um, commentary um, that uses a lot of gematria and all kinds of things, but um, a, a wonderful thing. And this is just a very, very brief summary of it. So you can enjoy that at your leisure. Who was the third you said this? I should send Vilna Gaon and who yes, was the third? Jacob Emden. Oh. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry. And his is actually very different. His, um, the Vilna Gaon is a kind of Jewish history from a slightly different point of view. Evans is about, this is the, um, the kind of travails of the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul was happy with God, it comes down, it gets polluted. This, all of these things have to do with sort of the Yetzir Harab, the very bad influences that you're like a dog, you're like a cat, you need punishment, you need the rod, you need, otherwise you get swept up in torrents that lead you here and lead you there. Also very colorful, but very different. Okay. So, uh, it turns out that there are actually, if you pay very close attention to uh, the, the song, there's some logical issues in it. Doesn't, certain things don't add up. And um, Shmuel Agnon, the uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, writer, uh, wrote in 1943, he wrote uh, his own kind of short little commentary on this song. It was published in Haaretz. And important to um, kind of remember the time. This is the Holocaust that's going on. He's writing this in Israel. Uh, he is somebody who, um, you know, sometimes could be very sarcastic in the things that he could write. So there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek um, in terms of how he solves the problem. But he, he sees a problem and he solves it in a, um, in a way that's worth thinking about. So if somebody would like to read, uh, maybe we could have one reader for the first paragraph, which lays out the problem, and another reader for the second paragraph, which is his solution, tongue-in-cheek sort of solution. Would you like to? Okay. Um, this poem tells us that the cat devoured the kid that father bought for two zuzines. It seems that the cat committed an evil deed deserving punishment. If so, the dog did right to bite the cat. If so, the stick did wrong to hit the dog. 
and the fire did right to burn the stick. If so, the water did wrong to extinguish the fire, and the ox did right to drink the water. If so, the slaughterer did wrong to slaughter the ox, and it seems the angel of death was right to slaughter the slaughterer. But in the end, God comes and slaughters the angel of death. It seems that the angel of death was right, and God was not. But this is impossible to say, because as the psalm says, God is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his deeds. Right. Okay, so we have a problem here. Turns out that God seems to be punishing the uh, the angel of death, who's at least if you follow the sequence, is, is righteous, doing the right thing here. Okay. So but, think about this in, in terms of the time that this is written, and think about the sort of the big question of well, you know, where's God? Um, somebody want to read the second part. This is his solution. Somewhat tongue in cheek. Someone else wants. To somebody read who hasn't read. Go ahead. The solution is this. Surely the cat committed an evil deed when it ate the kid. But when a kid and a cat quarrel, maybe they made peace. If so, what business is it of yours, dog, to involve yourself and render judgment here? It seems that the dog deserves the stick, and the stick did right to hit the dog. If so, the fire did wrong to burn the stick. If so, the water did right to extinguish the fire, and the ox did wrong to drink the water, and the slaughterer did right to slaughter the ox. And this means that the angel of death sinned by slaughtering the slaughter. Therefore, in the worlds to come, God brings the evil inclination, which is the angel of death, who is Satan, and slaughters him. Thus, it seems God is righteous in all his ways, and gracious in all his deeds. Okay. Psalm 145.17. Good. So there you have um, sort of the discovery of an interesting uh, kind of logical problem in the, in, built right into this song. Pretty shrewd to detect that, I think. And uh, a pre, as sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of making it come out right. Of course, in Jewish tradition, God can't be uh, on the wrong side of uh, an argument like that. Okay. So just a few words of um, conclusion about um, Hagadya. Uh, so Hagadya is, a, in a way, a picture of the world. And it's a picture of the world that starts off um, you know, with some amount of innocence, it seems. Um, and um, doesn't take long for it to start going downhill, which is actually kind of what happens in, uh, in Brashit as well. And the question is, um, you know, does it have to be that way? And what's the future? And Haggadya ends with this, you know, incredible vision of eternal life. And if you think about it, um, you know, if you think about what we've seen in our lifetimes in terms of um, biotechnology, genetics, and all this, it could be, it could well be that in the next centuries, there will be something almost like eternal life. You know, we have heart transplants, we'll have all, you know, who knows? It's certainly not as far-fetched an idea as it was. Uh, of course, it wasn't far-fetched to the people who believed that, like some of the prophets said, like Isaiah says, you know, God is going to redeem you from death. So uh, we have this idea, not just <coughs> that, yeah, it's an old idea in our tradition that the, that history is not ending in the same way that it began, with people continuing to fight and to die. We're going to eventually, according to Jewish thought, you know, there will be very, very different times. Getting into resurrection of the dead, the song doesn't actually talk about that, 
But for us to envision the possibility that life would go on, like almost forever, not such an outlandish thought. So, but we, when we think about that possibility, we don't think about God necessarily coming and sort of saying, you know, like, all the time, I don't know, switching some switch on that all of a sudden makes people live longer. We think about God as giving us, or having given us, amazing potential, amazing brains, and uh, the capacity to do all sorts of super creative things. We can do these creative things and use them for good or for ill. So it could be that we would blow up the world before we get to the point of creating we'll the world. world. Blow up, pollute, destroy in some kind of way. We could use all this creativity to you know, extend life, maybe infinitely, or to end it rather abruptly. So the question, of course, is um, what's it going to be? And Chagadya, um, to me, is a, is a statement that reminds us of our potential. I'm not expecting God to come down and turn on the eternal life switch. But I'm expecting us to be able to use all of the wonderful creativity that we have to, for good and not for evil. And um, so, but then there's a question. So God creates, if this is the world, if God does the world, God creates the world. Is that the world that God meant to create? And um, we know from Breshik that God's plans for creation did not exactly go according to plans, it seems. Uh, but there's another view on this, too which is that actually the flaws in creation were intended and put there for us to fix. And uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik has a wonderful uh, way of putting that. This is our last text here, which I'll read. He's not speaking about this in terms of Chagadya. Um, He's actually talking about it in terms of some other things. But if you think about Chagadya and the, this kind of world that is full of uh, flaws and needing fixing, I think that uh, you'll see why I chose this uh, to end. He said, and he um, he's, he's writing not in gender neutral uh, kind of language. Okay. When God created the world, he provided an opportunity for the work of his hands, man, to participate in his creation. The creator, as it were, impaired reality in order that mortal man could repair its flaws and perfect it. We are commanded to become a partner with the Creator in the renewal of the cosmos, complete and ultimate creation. This is the deepest desire of the Jewish people. So with that, I will wish you all um, Hope that you all have great staters. Hope you enjoy the songs. Thank you. Sing them in a new way.